Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Richard Bogan, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would really like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled Differential Diagnosis for Narcolepsy. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. I am an associate clinical professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine and also at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina, and the principal of Bogan Sleep Consultants, LLC, in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm really delighted today to be joined today by our distinguished colleague, Dr. Michael Thorpe. Dr. Thorpe? I'm, uh, I'm Michael Thorpe. I'm professor of neurology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And uh, I'm director of the Sleep Weight Disorder Center at Montefiore Medical Center, uh, both of them in the Bronx, uh, New York. And I'm delighted to be joining you today, Rick. Yeah, thank you. I think um, let's sort of review our learning objective. Um, we know there are a lot of sleepy adults out there. Probably 30% of the adult population is sleepy. And sleepiness can manifest itself in a lot of different ways, not only just sleepy and tired, but executive function and mood and productivity and workplace performance and social interaction. So I think it's important for us to recognize these sleepy individuals, particularly narcolepsy patients. So today, Dr. Thorpe is going to teach us how to define these individuals, how to find these individuals with narcolepsy and differentiate from the excessive daytime sleepiness associated with other medical and psychiatric disorders. Because again, sleepy people can present as other uh, other different symptoms. So let's look at Andrea here. Andrea is our patient, and she is 30 years old. She's an, an Hispanic woman, and she goes to her primary care physician because of sleepiness. And remember, I told you, uh, 25 a primary care physician has about 2,500 patients, maybe 3,000, and 30% are sleepy. So he, he or she sees this all the time. Her chief complaint very sleepy during the day, believes it is due to getting poor sleep, reports drifting in and out of sleep at night, and sometimes this is impacting workday performance. She works as a, a financial advisor, and she has a hybrid work home and um, in the office schedule, but struggles to focus at work due to sleepiness, works extra hours, and sometimes, like many of us, works in the evenings late because she seems to be more alert later at night. And she thinks she's only getting five to six hours of sleep per night. She puts off everything else, family visits, laundry, dishes, social activities, to try to stay caught up at work. She feels too exhausted to catch up with non-work stuff on the weekends and just wants to rest. Um, she reports transient loss of leg strength during a recent work presentation when she struggled with answering a question. She became anxious. And she's had similar episodes to this in the past. Her past medical history, she's had some generalized anxiety disorder, obesity or BMI is 30, uh, blood pressure 130 over 82, heart rate's normal, PHQ-9 is 12. And her current medications are escitalopram, which is an SSRI, 20 milligrams daily, for anxiety. So she saw her primary care practitioner and said, well, You've got to get more sleep. Uh, sleep a minimum of seven to eight hours. Limit caffeine in the evenings. Start with moderate exercise. The usual things we say for good health. Um, and proceed with weight loss. She had one month follow-up. No significant improvement in symptoms. 
and an effort score was done, 16 out of 24. So heart rate, blood pressure, how sleepy are you, 16 out of 24. Dr. Thorpe will talk about that. Worsen stress due to symptoms impacting her workplace performance. She um, Additional questioning reveals symptoms have actually been going on since high school, steadily worsening. So her primary care practitioner says, some, you know, early onset of AIDS, pretty severe, not better. Let's send you over to a sleep physician. And, and this is where we are going to find out from Dr. Thorpe about how do we approach this particular individual's um, what are the things that point us toward narcolepsy and what are the specific symptoms here in Andrea's case? Dr. Thorpe? Good. Thank you, Rick. Uh, well, I think the primary care physician actually did the right thing. Uh, and when you have somebody coming to you complaining of sleepiness and they're reporting only getting around five or six hours of sleep, certainly the first thing you want to do is to make sure they're getting enough sleep at night. So his recommendation for her to get seven or eight hours of sleep and also better quality sleep by limiting the caffeine. I mean, that seems appropriate. Uh, fortunately, he did an Epworth sleepiness uh, scale on her, which showed that she was very sleepy, 16 out of 24. So um, it seemed uh, reasonable when the sleep extension wasn't helping and there was a past history of sleepiness for him to refer to a sleep specialist. And the things that we would look at would be the consideration of whether she could possibly have narcolepsy. Now, on the slide, you can see this uh, acronym CHEST, which uh, stands for cataplexy, hallucinations, excessive daytime sleepiness, sleep paralysis, and sleep disruption. And these are the main features of, uh, of narcolepsy. So cataplexy is one of the uh, pathognomonic symptoms of narcolepsy, and it's one of the things that would really tell you if a patient has narcolepsy. And uh, in Andrea's case, uh, she did report some weakness that occurred uh, after a presentation when she was asked a question, when she got, obviously got a little emotional. So it would make you think about uh, cataplexy. But you need to um, consider other things that might cause the weakness. I mean, as indicated on the slide, hypotension and, or a seizure disorder, although there doesn't seem to be much else to go along with that. The blood pressure is normal. There's no history compatible with seizure disorder. And then uh, there's the excessive daytime sleepiness that she mentioned. So again, that's a strong feature of uh, narcolepsy, but other things can cause it too, as we talked about not getting enough sleep at night. Well, that seems to be eliminated by the primary care physician, but maybe she's got something underlying in the sleep, uh, uh, sleep apnea. She is a bit overweight, BMI 30. They need to consider that. She does have depression that may somehow be contributing to some fatigue and tiredness. Uh, she's on uh, a SSRI, as you mentioned, for that. So, um, you know, but uh, having a sleep in a scale of 16 out of 24 is pretty severe, and it's unlikely that it's going to be due to uh, a bit of insomnia or depression or parative leg movements that can occur in sleep. So you have to think about narcolepsy. Now, there are other features that you would want to look for in, in uh, uh, narcolepsy. Other abnormal REM sleep phenomena. That's the most important thing. So sleep-related hallucinations. When someone's falling asleep or waking up, do they tend to hallucinate, see, or hear things? Or if they're taking naps when they go into a nap or come out of a nap. So that's one of the things you would need to ask about. But again, there's a differential diagnosis there, too. You need to consider 
Could it be due to schizophrenia or nightmares or, or depression? They can all cause uh, some hallucinations. And then there's uh, sleep paralysis. And uh, sleep paralysis is a feeling of being unable to move when you're awakened, particularly uh, in the morning, although it can occur as you're falling asleep at night. It's a partial manifestation of REM sleep. And uh, this needs to be considered against other things too. Depression, again, nightmares because they're REM sleep phenomena. Uh, as you're getting uh, hallucinations with nightmares, you might be able to get might get sleep paralysis with nightmares. So you need to consider that. Although, again, there's no history being given of nightmares. And then there are psychiatric disorders. Schizophrenia and uh, is one that can particularly cause this, along with hallucinations. Uh, but again, no no history compatible with that. And then we now recognize that narcolepsy patients tend to have sleep disruption at night. And it may be because of some underlying sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea, insomnia, as we mentioned, uh, but, or periodic leg movements. But also it's a primary part of narcolepsy. So independent of those other causes, people with narcolepsy can have sleep disruption. Yeah, I think uh, you've raised a lot of different points. And, you know, we're amnestic when we're asleep. We only remember when we're awake. And we do have our narcolepsy patients who present with us with insomnia, you know, frequent awakenings. And um, and sometimes they say I only sleep four to six hours a night. But they have adequate time in bed. They just don't remember when they were asleep. They just remember all those awakenings. And they they sort of summarize that as I only got that amount of sleep. But the difference between classic insomnia is that they're sleepy in the daytime. People with insomnia can't lie down and take an hour nap. They're stuck on wake. So I think, as you said, qualify. Are they sleepy? Quantify how sleepy they are and take their reports of their total sleep time with a grain of salt. The other point that's kind of interesting to me is in the primary care practice, as I said, they have 2,500, 3,000 patients that they follow. In the presence of narcolepsy is about one in 2,000. So they, they probably have at least one narcolepsy, maybe two in their practice, you know. So they have to be sleuths to, to sort this out. And the disrupted sleep, the marked sleepiness, the high effort score, the REM dissociative symptoms all sort of point. But sometimes the patients present with other symptoms. You know, they think they translate the sleepiness into mood changes or executive function or I'm lazy or or something of that. Um, so what do you think in terms of how these individuals present? Yeah, well, the slide that we have in front of us shows us some interesting data, both in adults and in the pediatric population. And uh, these are the typical symptoms that patients will report to their physicians uh, when they first come in and uh, if they have an underlying cause of narcolepsy. So excessive daytime sleepiness. Uh, and both groups, both the pediatric and the adult group, tend to report being more sleepy than they should be during the day, falling asleep at times that they don't want to. Uh, and that sleepiness, the important thing about that sleepiness is that it's present 24 hours a day, essentially. I mean, they, whenever they're awake, they can be sleepy. Right. And uh, this uh, occurs day after day. If somebody goes for a couple of weeks without any sleepiness, then it's certainly not going to be narcolepsy. It's a constant condition. They also may report difficulty in concentrating, focusing, and thinking. And that's common, again, in both the children and in adults with uh, narcolepsy. 
Uh, and then uh, if we know that sleepiness affects our quality of life and our ability to function during the day and can affect our work or school. And uh, as you can see from, from the data, I mean, uh, our complaints about sleepiness affecting school is very common. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, too often it's not picked up in schools. Uh, in some cases, teachers are only too happy to let the child fall asleep. They're not causing any trouble in the classroom, but uh, uh, any sleepiness that's occurring during the day at school needs to be investigated. I mean, it may be simple lack of sleep at night, but then again, it could be a condition like narcolepsy. And then there are the uh, abnormal REM sleep phenomena, these sleep-related hallucinations, the uh, vivid dreaming that's very typical in patients with narcolepsy. And uh, this, again, it seemed to be a little bit more commonly reported in the pediatric population than in the adults. So children may bring up about uh, having uh, nightmares or, or frightening situations occurring at night and very vivid dreaming. Then, of course, there's the uh, cataplexy, the, the episodes of knee buckling, jaw sagging, head bobbing. Those are the classical features that are associated with cataplexy in adults. And we see those both in the pediatric age group as well as the adults. And uh, also as mentioned here, other episodes of weakness can, they're, they're often a little bit more vague and may not be associated with narcolepsy, but uh, certainly weakness in general is quite a common complaint in patients with narcolepsy, as is clumsiness. I mean, patients often report some clumsiness clumsiness uh, when they have narcolepsy. And this is often due to a little bit of weakness, maybe dropping things because of some hand weakness mm -hmm. or stumbling because they catch a toe. And then there's the uh, sleep paralysis. And uh, about 20% of the patients will report this as one of their first symptoms. But occasionally you do get these patients that'll come in and their primary complaint is uh, sleep paralysis. In which case, uh, I mean, it may be due to disrupted sleep at night, which can, uh, if you disrupt when sleep, you can get sleep paralysis. But uh, you always need to consider uh, narcolepsy in anyone presenting with uh, uh, sleep paralysis. <clears throat> yeah, I would agree with that. I, um, I have seen a patient uh, with sleep paralysis and associated with um, hypnopompic hallucination. You know, someone's coming in the room, side of the bed, touch me, I can't move and panic and have a panic attack. And so being treated for anxiety disorder related to a panic attack is something that we see um, in some of these individuals. And so they may, as, as we said, they may present with other types of symptoms. And I think Maurice Hyen's work in terms of looking at these individuals and how sleepiness in narcolepsy patients can present uh, you want to discuss that. So we, we, we call it misdiagnosis, but I think it's really the difficulty in making the diagnosis in these individuals. Yeah, there is a lot of difficulty in making the diagnosis, and most patients with narcolepsy have been misdiagnosed. Uh, but comorbidities are common in this patient population as well, and that may lead to a sort of a false diagnosis. Uh, if you see here on the left, it's comparing pediatric versus adult uh, in terms of misdiagnosis. And you see, in the pediatric group, a number of these are actually more common than uh, in adults as causing a misdiagnosis. ADHD, uh, bipolar disorder, 
uh, schizophrenia, and even uh, epilepsy uh, is more common misdiagnosis in children. But they they can all occur in adults as well, as well as the uh, uh, psychiatric disorder such as depression, anxiety disorder, or even insomnia. Some patients uh, uh, are misdiagnosed as having insomnia. That's the reason why they're tired and fatigued during the daytime. Or even in the older patient, dementia. That that's the reason that they're falling asleep during the daytime. Now, if you look at the comorbid conditions, I mean, a variety of these conditions can occur comorbidly with narcolepsy. And the one which is particularly common is the obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, more common, of course, in the adults rather than in children. But certainly you have to consider underlying sleep apnea. But you can't make the mistake of thinking that all the sleepiness is uh, maybe due to the sleep apnea. So in somebody who has sleep apnea and it's treated and the sleep apnea goes away, you've just got to consider is there something else going on, such as narcolepsy, because many patients with narcolepsy will have some degree of sleep apnea. Approximately 25% will have some degree of sleep apnea. So mm -hmm. don't fall into the mistake of misdiagnosing sleep apnea as being the cause of sleepiness in a narcolepsy patient. Yeah, that reminds me of two things. One is, and I think I've told you this before, my biggest referrer to my clinic is an ADHD specialist, and he does the effort score on all of his patients. And so when he identifies one of these with a very high effort score, he sends them to me. He's a patient of mine, and he, he complains about filling out the effort score every time he comes into the office. So I think, again, qualifying and quantifying sleepiness with these other comorbid problems, we need to certainly identify those individuals. So that's that's a, a very important point. So once we determine that narcolepsy is a potential cause of the patient's symptoms, Developing a differential diagnosis can be complicated. Um, so can you talk about some of the things that you think about? Well, you always have to develop a differential diagnosis. So any patient presenting to a physician with excessive daytime sleepiness, you have to consider a lot of different causes for it. And narcolepsy is just one. But uh, even though the patient may seem overweight, may give a history of sleep apnea, you still have to consider narcolepsy in the differential diagnosis. And this is where people make a mistake and often miss this diagnosis. Same in the depressed patient. Maybe the patient's depressed and has uh, narcolepsy, and that's why they're really sleepy during the daytime. So you need to consider for excessive daytime sleepiness, sleep apnea, sleep deprivation, depression. Could be drugs that the patient's taking. And you have to be careful in the adolescent age group these days because of drug use being uh, relatively common. And then there are some other disorders to distinguish from uh, narcolepsy, like idiopathic hypersomnia, uh, which is very similar to narcolepsy. And then there's uh, Klein-Levin syndrome, but that's recurrent episodes of sleepiness, a rarer condition, of course. But other things that can disrupt movement disorders, that can disrupt sleep at night, circadian rhythm disorders, particularly in adolescents, delayed sleep phase syndrome, a patient sleeping, not falling asleep till late in the morning and then being sleepy during the day, difficulty getting out of bed. That's often something uh, to be considered in the sleepy patient. 
And then there are, uh, you know, a lot of features that uh, are common to many of these disorders, behavioral symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness that you need to consider, irritability, particularly in children. Children are often more irritable rather than sleepy. They become hyperactive as it gets later in the night. And the poor attentiveness, that's why ADHD is such a common misdiagnosis for narcolepsy. And uh, children can become, uh, as well as the irritability, become actually uh, aggressive. And then, of course, there's the hallucinations we talked about. Then in the terms of the weakness that the patients are presenting with the weakness indicating uh, cataplexy, you do have to consider seizure disorder. But if you take a good history, you can readily distinguish this from seizure disorder. Um, majority of patients do not need to undergo EEGs and MRIs, et cetera, for a seizure disorder, uh, as the symptoms of narcolepsy can be readily detected by history. And then uh, hypotensive episodes, so you need to consider that. Uh, cataplexy is quite different. There's a paralysis. The patient is awake and aware of what's going on during the cataplectic episodes. And you do have to consider psychogenic episodes. Sometimes this happens uh, uh, where a patient will feign uh, having cataplexy or weakness, but it's something to think about. And then the hallucinations. We mentioned that uh, schizophrenia is a common cause of hallucinations, both uh, auditory and uh, visual hallucinations. And both of those can occur in the narcolepsy patient. Uh, and schizophrenia can occur in narcolepsy patients and children with narcolepsy. So you may have both conditions going on. And then there's uh, nightmares. You need to consider whether the hallucinations are due to uh, disrupted REM sleep at night because of nightmares and vivid dreaming or panic attacks, as you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Rick. Yeah, uh, so we talked about the Epworth. My Epworth is six. I'm proud of that. Many of us are. <laughs> so um, can you talk to us about the Epworth score? Yeah, the, the Epworth is a very useful tool that people should use uh, commonly because it's a simple eight-question questionnaire that can tell us about whether patients are very sleepy or not sleepy. And uh, typically on the Epworth, above 10 out of 24 indicates uh, an abnormal degree of sleepiness. These questions that are about falling asleep in sort of everyday situations, such as sitting and reading, watching TV, etc. However, if the EPWES uh, score gets very high, up to, say, 16 and above, you definitely have to think about narcolepsy. Most patients with narcolepsy will have an EPWES score up in that 16 range, and there's not a lot of things that can do that. So getting a very high score on the EPWES certainly can lead you in the direction of uh, whether a patient has uh, narcolepsy or not. Now, in uh, our patient's case, she had a, a score of 16, so that would certainly lead you to think about narcolepsy. So um, let's look re revisit Andrea. She went to the sleep specialist, and he finds during the clinical interview, he or she says, um, patient says, I dream a lot. I'm busy all night dreaming, and I have frequent awakenings. I'm aware of my dreams. And she reports that occasionally during these episodes of awakening, she cannot move her body. And occasionally sees a black figure at the end of her bed and uh, it disappears once she's fully awake and she can move. She also reports that she is falling into sleep. She occasionally experiences very vivid hallucinations described as rapidly moving colors and shapes 
looking like a kaleidoscope. She also feels uh, at times that these, uh, she feels as if she's floating on water. The sleep specialist recognizes the cases of cataplexy and phase delay consistent from the primary care physician and the hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis and a sleep study is ordered for the patient. Um, Dr. Thorpe, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the features certainly are consistent with narcolepsy with the uh, abnormal dream phenomena, the sleep paralysis, the uh, hallucinations and uh, the weakness suggested of cataplexy. So you certainly got to do uh, some investigations now for narcolepsy in this patient. So um, if we're moving forward with the diagnostics um, with her in terms of a sleep study and some other diagnostics, can you tell us the nosology? Yeah, so the diagnostic criteria are having the sleepiness, and ideally it should be more than three months, as it is in most cases by the time they get to it being considered for narcolepsy. And then uh, if they have cataplexy, then that's obviously a strong indication that they have narcolepsy. But uh, if you would want to get uh, a uh, sleep studies on the patient, uh, we typically do an overnight polysomnogram followed by a multiple sleep latency test. If the MSLT shows a mean sleep latency of less than eight, eight minutes or equal to eight minutes and two or more sleep onset REM periods, then that's diagnostic for narcolepsy. Or a patient may have a uh, sleep onset REM period on the nighttime sleep study. Uh, and now, under the new uh, diagnostic classification, that by itself can be diagnostic for narcolepsy. So it's such an abnormal finding that if it does occur, and it only occurs in about 50% of patients with narcolepsy, but if you find it, it's highly indicative of uh, narcolepsy. Or you could get uh, CSF hypocretin level. It's more of a research uh, test. Uh, it has, requires, obviously, a spinal tap. But if there's a low level of this neuropeptide, neuropeptide called hypocretin, uh, then that would indicate that the patient has narcolepsy. So either the cataplexy and the sleep studies or the hypocretin level can give you a diagnosis of what we call type 1 narcolepsy if they have cataplexy. Now, if there you can get narcolepsy, of course, without cataplexy, and uh, you may have the same uh, sleep uh, study information on the MSLT and the uh, sleep onset REM periods and even the uh, sleep onset REM period on the nighttime study, although that's less common in narcolepsy type 2 than it is in narcolepsy type 1. And of course, uh, these patients don't have cataplexy. And if you were to measure CSF hypocretin, you would find it was normal uh, if it was measured. Uh, but if they uh, meet those uh, sleep study criteria and the uh, excessive daytime sleepiness criteria and you ruled out other disorders, then it's likely that they have uh, narcolepsy. Well, thank you very much. I, I just saw a patient with a uh, REM latency of nine minutes and an Epworth score of 15 who had an apnea protocol. I haven't seen him yet, the nurse practitioner, but First thing I'm going to ask him about the REM dissociative symptoms and his degree of sleepiness. Of course, how much sleep are you getting and do you have circadian misalignment, et cetera? But um, uh, thank you very much for that discussion. Um, 
So we, let's move on to diagnostic tools and the diagnostic process, Dr. Thorpey. Okay, so of course, the most important thing is the interview. You have to take a detailed interview about these abnormal REM phenomena, the sleepiness, and uh, that's going to, and excluding other types of disorders, as we've mentioned. That's the most important thing. Then you're going to do the sleep studies, that overnight sleep study and the MSLT, the daytime sleep test. Uh, really, as I, we mentioned, you could do the CSF hypocretin, but that's more of a research uh, tool. <clears throat> yeah, the, um, you know, we talk about polysomnography, and a lot of people think people with narcolepsy can sleep anytime they want to, so their PSG ought to be perfect. Um, what, do you, what do you expect to see on the polysomnogram? Well, one of the things I think that's very important is paying close attention to the overnight polysomnogram. Uh, very often, uh, clinicians will do it just as a requirement for doing the MSLT, but there's a lot of information to be had from the overnight polysomnogram. Typically, patients with narcolepsy will fall asleep quickly, so have a short sleep latency. As we mentioned, they may go into REM sleep much earlier. Usually, it's about 90 minutes, but often it may be uh, 30 or 40 minutes. And if it's less than 15 minutes, of course, that'll give us a diagnosis of uh, narcolepsy. Sleep efficiency is reduced. Their sleep is not that great. They have more awakenings, frequent awakenings, increased number of arousals at night. So their quality of sleep is usually reduced. And because the REM sleep is more fragmented, they will have an increase in stage one sleep. And slow-wave sleep may be reduced. If you get a lot of slow-wave sleep in a patient who's fallen asleep quickly on the nighttime sleep study, then that may tip you towards the patient being uh, sleep deprived. And you need to look at the total sleep time. If somebody has uh, eight, nine, ten hours of sleep, very long sleep, you're going to think about idiopathic hypersomnia, not so much about uh, uh, narcolepsy. So, uh, and the REM, non-REM cycle, so the internal structure of uh, REM and non-REM sleep is also altered in, in patients with narcolepsy. Yeah, I think those are very important points, learned points. Um, but there are some things that interfere with the sleep study, so uh, and the multiple sleep latency tests. You want to discuss right. that? Yeah, I will. There are, uh, you know, you need to be careful when doing these studies. You have to make sure that the patient gets an adequate amount of sleep on that sleep study. They must have at least six hours. Otherwise, you really can't interpret the multiple sleep latency test. You've also got to be aware of patients that may be going to bed late. Maybe they came to the sleep lab and they were held up because of traffic and they got caught up in things. And so they actually don't get to bed till much later. And then they may sleep over uh, longer in the morning and may have a sleep on their REM period because their sleep pattern shifted later. And then, of course, there are those patients who have chronically delayed sleep, what we call delayed sleep phase syndrome. And you need to be careful of them because if they get awoken at 7 a.m. and have their first nap at uh, 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning, then you may get sleep onset REM periods because that's when they're normally having their, their REM sleep. So looking at the uh, circadian pattern of sleep is most important. Medications the patient are on may affect the REM sleep uh, and may affect uh, prevent them from having REM sleep episodes or if they've withdrawn from them. They may get a rebound and have an increased number of REM episodes because they've come off REM suppressive medication. Alcohol and illicit drugs can affect the sleep study. 
the comorbidities we talked about, the sleep apnea, or a patient may have insomnia and may have a very disrupted night, so may get very little sleep that night. And again, you need to structure that in when you're considering the uh, interpretation of the daytime test. And that daytime test must follow the nighttime study. So there's a lot of information to be got from the nighttime sleep study, and you can't get that from a home sleep test. That's why a home sleep test is totally inadequate in making the diagnosis of narcolepsy. But as you say, Rick, there are also limitations in the multiple sleep latency test. Exactly. Typically, we're going to look for that mean sleep latency of eight minutes or less in the two sleep onset REM periods. But that can actually occur in 6% of men and in 1% of women. And uh, just getting sleep onset REM periods can occur in even a greater percentage, 13% of men and 6% of women. So uh, you have to realize that there are normal situations that may cause this. But typically, we believe that in this normal population, it's because there may be some underlying sleep apnea or shift work or the patient has an irregular sleep pattern with some insufficient sleep. So just remember, you can get false positive MSLT results. But more commonly and of greater concern are the false negative results. And you have to uh, remember a lot of things can affect the, uh, the MSLT. There may be somebody using a jackhammer outside the sleep lab and uh, creating noise so the patient can't sleep during the day. Maybe noise inside the lab. Maybe the technicians are talking when they shouldn't be and the patient's hearing it and they can't get to sleep. Maybe your patient's very anxious about the testing and scared that the test is not going to give them the result that they... Uh, uh, or the diagnosis that they're looking for, and that anxiety prevents them from sleeping during the night. So a lot of things can cause false negatives, which occur in about 20% of patients. And you have to remember that. may need to be repeated. And uh, often the sleep study, the MSLT, just like the overnight sleep study, it may not be performed under ideal sleep uh, conditions. So uh, there are strict criteria from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine for performing the overnight sleep study and the MSLT. And, uh, you know, a sleep center may not adhere to these criteria strictly. And so you need to consider that uh, in these patients. Absolutely. And then there's poor test, retest reliability. I mean, patients who uh, um, may have a negative uh, uh, multiple sleep latency test, you test them again and you find it's positive. Sometimes it can go the other way. Sometimes it can be positive and go negative. So you have to remember that the diagnosis can change, particularly in the NT2 patients, less so in the NT1 patients. Exactly. So we, we have this group of sleepy people and um, um, type 1, type 2 narcolepsy, and then there's also idiopathic hypersomnia, which, you know, have some similarities and some differences. You wanted to, to sort of discuss yeah. that? This is a, a nice uh, illustration here, this uh, Venn diagram, and you can see that uh, on the left side, we've got the type 1 narcolepsy in the middle, type 2, and on the right is idiopathic hypersomnia. And uh, there are various features that occur uh, uh, in all of these disorders, so that we have, uh, uh, for example, things like uh, the sleepiness is common to all three disorders. The sleep latency, patients may fall asleep in less than eight minutes in, in each of these three conditions. 
But then there are things that really quite distinguish them. For example, for the type one is cataplexy and the low CSF type three. For the idiopathic hypersomnia, having a long nocturnal sleep episode or sleep within a 24 hour period of greater than 11 hours is very typical for idiopathic hypersomnia. Those patients tend not to have the abnormal REM sleep phenomena. So you're just going to get the REM sleep paralysis or sleep-related hallucinations. That's only going to occur in the NT2 and NT1. But there's a lot of overlap between these conditions, and that's why you need to be familiar with these diagnostic features that are seen in these disorders. Yeah. So we have the ICSD3 criteria, which sort of guides us. And um, But there are some clearly some pitfalls and difficulties. You would think these these individuals would be easy to diagnose. They have these vivid dreams and dissociative symptoms and cataplexy, et cetera. You'd think it'd be easy to diagnose, but it's not. Um, and there's some pitfalls and difficulty. Right. The, this diagnosis is not easy to make. The clinical interview is most important. You may want to get some diaries plotting out the patient's sleep pattern. You need the polysomnogram, the MSLP. And in uh, rare cases, you may even need to go to the CSF hypercretin levels to make a clear diagnosis. A lot of subtleties in, the, in this diagnosis and in the way you interpret the diagnostic tests as we've talked about. And cataplexy itself, uh, in some cases, can be very difficult to diagnose, maybe very subtle, maybe just a very minor sort of uh, a weakness. And, and there are many other disorders, as we've mentioned, that occur in narcolepsy, such as sleep apnea. So uh, that may make the diagnosis more confusing. And as a result of this, uh, you know, 82% of patients with narcolepsy will get uh, receive a diagnosis more than one year from symptom onset. And one third don't get their diagnosis until uh, more than 10 years. So this is a diagnosis that typically gets missed. Yeah, it comes on in teenage years and they just don't know how sleepy they are and they have these unusual symptoms. They just, this is just me. It's amazing how often we hear patients have cataplexy and they're like, well, it, it's just me, uh, sort of thing. So let's go back to Andrea. She's, again, 30 years old and had the sleep study performed, achieving adequate total sleep time, which was uh, documented. And her sleep study, her sleep latency was 12 minutes. Didn't tell us what time uh, the study was done. REM latency was 14.5 minutes. Um, assuming the sleep study was done during her customary bedtime and awake time. But then the next day, she had the multiple sleep latency test, and the average, as you know, we're sort of sampling the brain's ability to stay awake when there's no sensory input. She fell asleep on average in four minutes, and um, she actually had four sleep onset REM episodes. Um, we actually looked at our database, and short REM latency on the PSG was sort of predictive of more sleep onset REM episodes. <laughs> during the NAP studies, so, uh, as, and, and also for the type 1 narcolepsy patient. So this patient clearly meets the diagnostic criteria. Um, she has a short REM latency the night of the study. Normally, that should be beyond 60 minutes. And, um, and then on the multiple sleep latency test, with no sensory input, she fell asleep quickly and then quickly went into REM sleep. We shouldn't do that in the daytime. It takes, takes a very long time. So we have some discussion questions, Dr. Thorpe. Um, and certainly, if you want to make any comments about the sleep study or, or some of these questions here, uh, I would welcome your comments. 
Well, yeah, I mean, this is very clearly that she has narcolepsy based on these results, the short REM latency at night, the uh, short uh, sleep latency on the MSLT and the sleep onset REM periods. And that coupled with the history definitely indicates that uh, this patient has narcolepsy. So um, again, so what are some of the things we can implement to help in screening our patients? What can help us um, to be more effective in the differential diagnosis and ensure that our diagnostics are appropriate? Well, I think the most important thing is really the history. And again, any patient presenting with excessive daytime sleepiness, you have to consider in the differential diagnosis narcolepsy. If you don't consider it, you're going to definitely miss it. So most important thing, ask detailed questions, take a good history uh, from the patient. Yeah, can is, also, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, we can also uh, uh, develop a uh, more uh, detailed uh, uh, differential diagnosis in these patients and recognize the fact that they may have sleep apnea or they may be sleep deprived. But there's more to what's going on than just that sleep deprivation and their sleep apnea. And then we need to make sure that the sleep study results provide the most accurate information. And so that must be performed under ideal conditions. And we have to interpret those results carefully, looking at the nighttime sleep study, looking carefully at the daytime multiple sleep latency test. Yeah, it's... it's um... I see a, a fair number of young females with an age of seven are on 15 of CPAP, <laughs> and they have abnormal MSLT. So it's not always sleep apnea, obviously, even with an abnormal AHI. So non-snoring young female with an age of seven and an F worth of 16, I think, of narcolepsy, not of sleep apnea. But that's why we're clinicians. But uh, this this is an excellent program. I mean, we could talk a long time, but... Um, Let's summarize our discussion with our SMART goals. They, our goals are to be specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is what I hope that you will take from this presentation to apply to your practice. I want you to screen all your patients with complaints of sleep dysfunction and assertively excessive daytime sleepiness for symptoms associated with narcolepsy. And consider the comorbidities with similar presentations when evaluating any patient with EDS and considering a potential narcolepsy diagnosis, utilize that ICSD-3 criteria when assessing any patient with symptoms of EDS or potential narcolepsy diagnosis or narcolepsy diagnosis. Now, today's CMEO briefcase is part of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Sleep Disorders Hub. So I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series, the Sleep Disorders Hub has these activities and many others on narcolepsy and more. CME Outfitters also has a sleep disorders hub with a number of excellent resources to share with your patients. So again, thank you, Dr. Michael Thorpe, for joining me today. And thank you to the audience for joining us. Be safe and take care of yourselves so you can provide the best care for your patients. Again, thank you, Dr. Thorpe. Very good. Thank you, Rick.